Our second reading is from the book of Exodus, but begins in Genesis. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know, jo who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, and the other Pua, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God, and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him from a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it, placed it among the reeds by the river bank. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. The word of the Lord. This morning, we start in on a new series uh, 
It's a summer of discernment for Christ Church Vienna, and we're looking at the book of Exodus. So when CCV began as a church more than seven years ago, um, it began with a clear vision and values. We had, uh, I had spent years thinking about planting a church in my hometown. And then over the course of a couple of years before we planted or started this church in 2011, I gathered people around, refined some of the vision, the direction, and we ultimately started Christ Church Vienna in November of 2011. About three or four years ago, I began seeking God, saying, God, what next? What do you want from us? Who are you calling us to be? So there's two parts to this. One is, I believe every church, every church, every church is meant to fulfill God's calling as a as a bulwark and a light for the gospel. So every church is meant to uphold who Jesus is and what he has done. The basic apostles and Nicene Creed to be um, proclaimers of the gospel in word and deed. And we see that in our vision and values, to be gospel-driven, externally focused, an extended family, people who are for Vienna, for the community that, that God has put us in. And in a sense, that should be true of every church. Those things should be true of every church, and that's what we've started with. But I also believe every church has a unique calling and identity. Every church is there for a reason. We are not First Baptist or Vienna Prez or St. Mark or or any number of churches, McLean Bible. We all have unique callings and places in this community and during different seasons of our life. And I've been trying to seek God for a couple of years now saying, Lord, what do you want of us? Who are we uniquely to be? Like we're grown up now and who are we? So this past year and into this spring, a number of things have kind of come about, a new opportunity, some things I've been learning on my own as I've been seeking God. And then it came to pass in a couple months ago that Dean Miller, who uh, is a sister church planter of, of ours, he uh, pastors Church of the Ascension, he said, hey, this summer, do you wanna pair up and do um, a series in the book of Exodus? And as I was reflecting on Exodus and thinking about it, I thought this is a perfect opportunity to stop and push all of you and me to seek God ourselves, to seek God ourselves, to listen to God, to seek after God, and discern our calling as individuals. Okay, so I'm not just talking about our church, I'm actually talking about you and me. Whatever stage of life you're in, it is always a good time to stop and say, Lord, what are you calling me to? Who have you made me to be? And so this entire summer, I'm gonna be pushing you as individuals, teenagers, adults, any age, I want you to seek God and say, what have you made me for? Why am I here? And at this season of my life, kids, no kids, married, not married, in high school, finished with high school, whatever stage of life you're in, who has God made you to be? And what is he calling you to? And in that process, what is he calling us to? And so we'll talk about it more at the announcements, but that's what this devotional guide is for. When you look at it, you'll see it'll give you the sermon series that we're going to be looking at. It'll start on June 9th, which is today. And this week, you're supposed to read in advance for next week and also use all the open space to write down what you sense God is saying to you on behalf of you and also, incidentally, on behalf of our church community. Exodus as a book, is a fantastic guide for discernment. So there's a number of themes that are really biblical themes, big themes in the book of Exodus. There is deliverance, which is sort of the most obvious, right? They're enslaved, and they get delivered out of bondage into freedom. So it is a picture of God's salvation. It is also a great picture of the relationship God has with a people. You can know God, is what he says. 
in showing up for Moses, in meeting with and talking to the people of Israel, and giving him them his law. It is also part of their calling. In the book of Exodus, we see the calling of humanity, the calling of a people. Israel was called to be God's chosen people, which essentially meant you are to be my unique image bearers in the world. The world will know about me because of you. You have a calling. There's also these themes that are throughout the Bible, like place, which we think about ultimately as heaven, but a promised land, to have a home with God. And finally, God's presence. It runs throughout. You can be with God. God will be with you. You don't want to go somewhere where God is not. And on this day of Pentecost, we celebrate the Holy Spirit coming and dwelling with us. These themes are found throughout Exodus, but they're also the themes of the whole Bible, if you would. But the picture, the story, the narrative of Exodus is pointing to Israel becoming God's people. Now, a couple of commentators and preachers note this. God delivers Israel out of bondage because they are his people. Meaning this, God has already chosen them. You are my people. I love you. That's why I'm going to deliver you out. But he delivers them out so that they can become his people. Meaning, when they're in Egypt, in slavery, they have no land. They're basically a subjugated people. They're not a nation. God says, no, you are a nation, and I have a land for you. Now go become what I've made you to be, my chosen people in the promised land. And that's what I'm aiming for us to do this summer, is for us to personally and corporately understand who God has made us to be, what he is calling us to. And I really do mean I want you to do that, to take time to just say, Lord, what are you calling me to be? Who are you calling me to be at this season of my life? In Exodus 1 and 2, we get at the very beginning some promises of God that are being hearkened back to. In Genesis 50, 24, which really Exodus is a continuation of Genesis, at the end of chapter 50 of, Ex- of Genesis, which is the very end of the whole story, we read that Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So Joseph, near the end of his life, is harking back to the promises God made to Abraham. I will make you a people, a nation, and I will give you a promised land. Joseph and his family and all of his brothers and their families, a small nation at this point, are in Egypt. He's about to die, and he says, hold on to the promises of God. And then several hundred years passes and the promises of God are not coming true except we read in verse six and seven, then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. This is actually going back to the creation mandate in Genesis one and two. God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And it wasn't happening. Everybody was barren. They couldn't seem to grow a nation until they're in Egypt in slavery. And then Genesis 1 and 2 begins to be fulfilled. They are filling, multiplying, fruitful. But then there's this foreboding turn, this ominous turn. Verse 8, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. 
Joseph was a Hebrew accepted in, Egypt, in Egyptian circles. He was a leader, a prominent man. And they had favor, the people of Israel had favor in Egypt because of him. But there arose a king, a pharaoh, who did not know Joseph. This is setting the stage for the whole story, the whole narrative. It begins with promise, fruitful and multiply, God will deliver you out, you'll be a nation, have a land. But there's a problem. There's an evil power that threatens to annihilate the people of God and get rid of these promises. And ultimately, as you know, as we just read, as we had read, they are enslaved, afflicted, nearly killed off. Their lives are bitter and horrible. There's a problem, and yet there's a seed of hope in these first two chapters. The seed of hope comes in the defiant women found in chapter one and two, and in this miraculous baby who grows up under unique circumstances. And it finishes with a God who hears the cries of his people and remembers his promises. Exodus is a really compelling narrative. Even just reading those first two chapters when Stephen was reading them, I'd read through them a number of times this week, and I'm like, this is such a fantastic story because it, it captures all of the elements of great narrative because all the elements of great narrative are actually captured in the biblical narrative. It is creation and fall and redemption and new creation. And you see it even here. It's the beginnings of they're, they're, there's promises, they are almost a people, but there's a fall into slavery and almost death. And then there's the little bit of hope of redemption, Moses, the midwives. And we're waiting for the nation to be birthed. Any movie or film or story that has ever caught your imagination has built on those same themes. Whether it's Star Wars or Lord of the Rings or the Avengers series, there's creation and there's a drop into some problem or fall, then there's a redeemer, and then there's the hope of new creation. Every story, Rocky, Sandlot, Elf, now like they all capture elements of these things. <laughs> there's a character, there's a problem, right? There's redemption and new life. Elf. It's, it's basically Exodus. There's a running thread in Exodus as well that's a question. It's a question about fears. And it's one I think we can relate to. We've been talking about it here. The question is this, and it keeps coming up. So when you're reading, listen for it. Whom do you fear? Do you fear man or do you fear God? Do you fear man and circumstances or do you fear God? The fear of man causes bad things to happen. Pharaoh fears man. We got that in the reading as well. Pharaoh it raises up who doesn't know Joseph and he looks out at the Hebrew people and he says they are too many and too strong. That is a statement of fear. He looks out at them and he's like, they are too many and too strong. And while they tried to kill them and subjugate them, they continued to flourish and there were more Hebrews and the whole people of Egypt were in dread. They were looking out at the Hebrews, and they were in dread of another man. And what happens when you have fear? It drives you to act on those fears. And so Pharaoh afflicts and slaves, treats ruthlessly, and kills the Hebrews. That word afflict is a horrible word. 
in the Hebrew. It means to forcefully subjugate. It's actually the same word that's used for rape in the Old Testament. Enslaved, subjugated, and dealing ruthlessly with no pity, no compassion, no humanity. Killing off the baby boys. Out of fear of man, Pharaoh and the Egyptians are driven to use and control the Hebrew peoples or to annihilate them. You know, if, they, if, if Pharaoh hadn't feared man but instead feared God, he might have seen the, the growth of the Hebrew people and he might have ruled well over them. He was a ruler. He was a leader. He had an entire nation. He could have helped them to flourish economically, given them rule of law and peace. He could have established a relationship with them, establishing a relationship, a, a covenant, a treaty of peace with the Hebrew peoples and sent them out to go become the people they were meant to be. He could have had a relationship with the Hebrews so that he had an ally of peace and of trade for centuries. But he fears man and he resorts to control and kill. Moses, too, fears man, at least in chapter 1 and 2, right? He murders, he flees from Pharaoh, and eventually in chapter 3, he doubts God's call because of the fear of man. It's interesting, it's the two men who are identified, Moses and Pharaoh, who fear man, but it's the women who fear God. The midwives in chapter 1 are named It says in verse 21 that they fear God, and so they disobey Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the most powerful person in the world that they know of, and he can control the armies and the police, and what they are doing could get them killed. But they do not fear Pharaoh as much as they fear God. And so they act with courage because they fear God most, and they save the young boys of the people of Israel. And guess what? When Israel goes out in the Exodus, who are the old men and leaders? Who leads the people of Israel besides Moses? The heads of the tribes and clans, who are the boys that they had saved. They saved the leaders of the Exodus. But that's not why they did it. They didn't save these boys thinking, because it'll go well with us and eventually we need some leaders and we want some generals and colonels about 40 to 80 years from now. They did it because they feared God more than man. It wasn't outcomes they were looking for. It was doing the right thing in the eyes of God. And that's why the three women in chapter two do the same thing. Moses' mother, his brave sister, and the daughter of Pharaoh. All of them act with boldness and compassion, doing right in the eyes of God, rejecting, rejecting the threats of man and end up saving Moses, who saves an entire nation. As I was reflecting this week on fear in the Old Testament, it comes up again and again, fear God, fear Yahweh, fear man. Fear in the Old Testament, my take is this, this is my own wording, is that it's a controlling belief. When you look at the idea of fear in the Old Testament, it is whatever is your controlling belief. It's the belief that beats out your other beliefs. And we all have a controlling belief. We all have a fear that trumps other fears. You will act, you will act out of, on, and from the basis of whatever you believe to be most true. 
And so the question that comes back again and again through the Old Testament, especially in Exodus, is who is your Lord? Who do you fear? Pharaoh or Yahweh God? And we could ask the same thing of us, of each one of us. Who or what do you fear is the same question as who or what do you trust? Yourself? Your thoughts, feelings, how you observe and process the world? Others? What they say? Circumstances that you're in? Or God? This summer, as we're in this process of discernment, we're looking at our identity, which we've talked about a lot of times here, but I think actually identity is a primary issue in our culture for a number of reasons, some of which includes the way that the cultural changes have made it so that we don't have the same foundations for kind of forming an identity. Who am I? Why am I here? What does humanity matter for? Um, And and in some ways that's good, because look, the, the fixed nature of identity a hundred years ago meant that if you were an African-American in the U.S., it was a bad place to be. If you are of a lower caste in certain cultures, even today, because of fixed nature of identity and status, it was a bad pla- it's a bad place to be. We have freedom to be able to make ourselves something, but we don't know what to do with that. So who are we? What is humanity? And ultimately, who are you? Who is God making you to be? And that's why I want us as Christians to think about the three ways we look at identity. At least that's the way I'm going to talk about them, some this summer, but especially today. The first is our gospel identity. If you are a believer in Christ, you have a gospel identity. This is who you are because of what Christ has done for you and what he says about you. These are things we talk about all the time. If you are a believer in Christ, you are forgiven. Everything you have ever done is forgiven. You are loved, not on the basis of anything you do, have done, will do, but because God loves you. You are a child of God, an heir of eternity. Our gospel identity is meant to be our foundational identity, the place from which we start each day and end each day. But we live instead often out of a false identity. Our false identity is based on our guilt and shame and fear. It's the sins that you can't break free from. It's your own weaknesses or failures the things you know you've done or the things that have been done to you. And it's that voice inside your head that goes back to that. It says, all you are is, all you are is an addict. All you are is somebody who struggles. All you are is a failure. You're not smart enough. You're not pretty enough. All you are is somebody. And it's why we have to constantly preach the gospel to ourselves. Literally say, self, God said he sent his only son for you. So stop believing that you're just a sinner, a failure. You are a child of God, forgiven. Live out of that. That's our foundation, okay? Living out of the gospel identity instead of our false identity. But I think on top of that, much like the way I'm talking about our church as a whole, there is what I'm going to call a kingdom identity, Your kingdom identity is your unique calling. Who God has made you in particular to be. Do you know that we all look different? Even those of us who are related look different. We have different fingerprints and eyes and, you know, all these things, right? 
You also have different, just the genetic code of you, your, your body, everything about you is absolutely unique. The same is true of your story. Nobody else's story is the exact same as you. So your experiences and your history are absolutely unique. And I think it's also true of you spiritually and how God sees you. He has made you uniquely for his purposes. And you will find life to the full as you understand that and live into it. Your kingdom identity, your kingdom calling, your unique calling, whatever it is will align with the nature and character of God. So think about the acts and nature of God, the gospel itself. You might be, so I'm just gonna kind of give you some ideas. You might be somebody, and you don't think about it as your job. It's, it's not you are a lawyer or a teacher or a student. That's your job or vocation. It's not even I'm a mom or I'm a sister or a brother. Those are part of your vocation. It's rather you might be a creator, somebody who can't help but think creatively to envision the future, to come up with possibilities. You might be a gardener, the sort of person who takes something that already exists and makes it more fruitful and flourishing and beautiful. You might be the kind of person who can't help but take chaos and bring order out of it. You might be a systems person, right? Or a healer, the sort of person that when people leave you, they feel better about themselves. What is God saying about you? Who are you wherever you go? Whatever it is will ring true in your core. When you come to realize it, like, oh, this is what God thinks of me or what he's calling me to, it'll be like, I've always known that. How did I not already know that? It will be confirmed by others who will be like, yep, you bring order out of chaos all the time. Others of us just create chaos. And you're probably already doing it, but not fully aware. It's what God made you to do and is calling you to do in every sphere of your life. So if you're the kind of person who brings uh, order out of chaos, you're gonna do that in the business realm, you're gonna do that at home. You're gonna take dishes and make order. You're gonna take a front yard and bring order. You're gonna take a household and bring order. You're gonna take a boardroom and bring order, a project at work and bring order and create systems that others can step into. You just can't help yourself. You will find yourself running, flying, free to the extent that you live into the calling God has made you for, the unique image he has implanted on you to be his image bearer in this world. But whatever it is, is not for you. It's not just for you. It is for the glory of God and the good of others. It finds its proper place in fulfilling God's kingdom purposes in this world. Look, you already have a calling from God. You may not know it. You already have a unique kingdom identity. But apart from God, apart from God, there will be a tendency to use it for self or even for evil. Think about it, we, we've just celebrated this past week the 75th anniversary of the D-Day invasion. In 1944, think about some of the great leaders in the world, people who really were gifted as leaders. FDR, Churchill, Joseph Stalin, Emperor Hirohito, Adolf Hitler. They actually all had incredible giftings as leaders, motivators 
powerful personalities. You can use that same thing for good, setting people free and protecting them, or to control, subjugate, and get your own. Through God, we can take the identity and calling he's placed on us and run, fly, live life to the full. But most of us live constantly in fear, controlled by our false identity, living out of fear of man and our circumstances, or we don't even know who we are in God. This is sort of the story of Moses before he fully steps into his calling. Moses' kingdom identity, his unique identity, is found in Exodus 3 at the burning bush, which we'll get to next week, when God says, Moses, I will send you to bring my people out. You're the kind of guy who will bring people out. Stephen in Acts 7, before he is killed, says, God sent Moses as both ruler and redeemer. So this is Moses' kingdom identity, his calling. You are a leader of people and a deliverer. You can't help yourself but deliver. But Moses, at least in chapter 2, lives in fear of man. In chapter 2, verse 12, he comes upon um, an Israelite being uh, subjugated and abused, and he can't help himself. He has to deliver the guy. But instead of looking to God, he looks around. Is anyone going to see me? And acts of his own accord, murders the guy, buries him. And then he's living in fear of Pharaoh. And he has to run away and flees Pharaoh. He's living out of fear of man as a deliverer, but doesn't even know it. But he can't help himself. He's a deliverer. He goes to Midian, and at a well in Midian, we read that, um, according to the daughters of the priest of Midian, that the shepherds came and drove them away. They, they were going to feed their flocks by this well, but Moses stood up and saved them, these people he didn't even know. Why? Because he's a deliverer. This is what he does. He delivers people. And when the, the daughters came home, they said to their father, an Egyptian, because Moses looked like an Egyptian at the time, delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds. He can't help himself. And yet, he doubts God. He doubts this is true about him. Pharaoh is too strong. Don't send me back there, Lord. Don't send me back there. I'm nothing but a murderer. I'm just one of the slave people. That's all I am. Or think about the confusion he lived in as somebody who was a Hebrew, ethnically, but grew up in the house of Pharaoh. Who am I? I don't even know. I'm not a deliverer. I'm not the one. Find some other deliverer. And yet he is the most qualified deliverer on the face of the earth. He is an ethnic Hebrew who speaks the language and knows the customs. But he was raised in the house of Pharaoh, which meant he had the greatest education in the, in the land and access to the highest offices. He knew how to step into that world and how to operate in that world. He knew how to operate in both worlds. He was the most qualified deliverer for the people of Israel. And yet, God does not say, you're the most qualified, that's why I'm sending you. You know, you, you spent years in the schools of, of, of Egypt, plus you're a Hebrew and you speak the Hebrew language. And also, you know, what does he say? God doesn't say, here's all your qualifications. That's why I'm sending you. He says, look at me. Look at me. Follow me. Listen to me. Hear me. Fear me. Not man. 
and become who I've already made you to be. A deliverer. This summer, I want you to join me in seeking God, discerning your identity and calling. If you already know it, got it firmly, just discerning what God is calling you to next. If you're not sure the gospel part of it, stop there. Understand that you are loved, that Christ died for you. You are his chosen child and reject that false identity of shame, guilt, and fear. But many of you I know are Christians, have been for years, but you're also treading, treading water spiritually. Unsure when I'm talking about this, like who am I, God? What, what are you calling me to? Or even the idea of seeking God and listening to him just sounds scary. But I'm asking you this summer to stop and wherever you go, whatever trips you're on, at home or not, to spend a day or two, three each week seeking God, being quiet and listening. You know, God speaks to Israel and to Moses. Uh, One of the commentators pointed out, God speaks to Israel and Moses when they are either camped, which means not moving, or alone in the wilderness. That's when God speaks to Israel directly in the book of, of Exodus, when they are camped or when they are alone. So in other words, you want to hear from God, you're going to have to sit still. Five minutes even. <laughs> and you're probably going to have to be alone, even apart from your device, for five minutes. Be silent and wait. And if you can push five minutes into 10 or 15, great. Just start somewhere. Silent for five minutes saying, Lord, what do you want to say to me? And write it down. The end of chapter two ends with this great word of hope because God comes back on the scene. Exodus two, verses 23 through 25, says that the people cry out to God from their slavery and God hears and remembers and sees and knows. The whole story of Exodus is God moving across an entire swath of history, 400 years, moving in his loving concern for an entire nation, and yet digging deep into individuals, the midwives, Moses, people. God cares about and is moving in the sweep of history across nations, for an entire church. But he also hears your cries. He sees what you're going through. He remembers his promises to you, and he knows you and is calling you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in you we live and move and have our being. We humbly pray you to guide and govern us by your Holy Spirit, that in all the cares and occupations of our life, we may not forget you, but may remember that we are ever walking in your sight through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.